I'm Megan Rosenthal. And I'm Alexis Lee. And this is the Mayo Lab Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Mayo Lab podcast. This season, we are talking about stigma, um, and we're excited to have Dr. Carrie Kinney with us to talk about anxiety. But first, uh, Carrie, will you just, um, first of all, welcome to the podcast. And uh, will you give us a little background on your history, your education, experience, and how you got to where you are right now? Sure. Yeah. So um, I started researching anxiety disorders actually back when I was an undergrad. Um, at Northwestern kind of by chance. And I just really liked it and was really fascinated, particularly by generalized anxiety disorder and decided to keep pursuing it. Um, Got my PhD at University of Illinois at Chicago. um, And then I did some training actually in Mississippi at University of Mississippi Medical Center uh, for my residency and a couple of years of postdoc. And then I moved to another postdoc position at Vanderbilt, which is where I am currently. Um, And I'm currently on a training grant focused on the development of psychopathology. Um, But all throughout that time, I've been researching the kind of development and treatment um, of anxiety and related disorders. And more recently, I've shifted a little bit to include um, some research on uh, disparities as well in anxiety disorders. That is awesome. And I'm excited to dig in because I think anxiety is such a hot topic right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and, a, and a word that people use maybe interchangeably in ways um, that they don't mean to or that's not necessarily appropriate. So mm-hmm. before we dig in, can you explain to us what anxiety is in the technical sense? Sure. So anxiety is basically an anticipation of any future threat. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's similar to fear, but it's a little bit different because we would define fear as more of an emotional response to a real or perceived like imminent or immediate threat. So anxiety is more like future focused, tends to be a little bit more cognitive as well. So it involves a lot of um, just worry and a lot more of that kind of thing um, where it's just more thought focused rather than that fear, which can be a little bit more Uh, visceral, I think. Um, But when it comes to anxiety disorders, so, you know, everybody has Mm -hmm. anxiety, of course, and in many ways, it's adaptive. Um, You know, some level of anxiety can actually improve performance. So like, I was a little bit nervous for today, for example. And so I spent some time preparing some answers to questions and practicing saying a few things. Um, So hopefully, my performance will be better than if I had no anxiety, for example. Hmm. But then, of course, anxiety can become really elevated to the point where it can interfere with performance um, or lead to what we would call clinically significant distress. So those really, really high levels of distress um, or impairment. And that just means it can interfere with functioning in different aspects of life, whether that's you know social interactions or it interferes with our work, something like that. So that that's kind of when it would become... Um, that disorder level um, of anxiety where we would really recommend treatment for that. So what is, as you progress from kind of that anxiety that everyone kind of just has to, it's actually good for you to, okay, maybe you need to, we should address this. Is there a progression or things that you would say to our listeners of just kind of like things to watch for um, in that progression? So maybe you can identify it before it is interfering with work, school, family, friends, et cetera. Yeah, I would say um, 
of course, everything exists on a continuum. So there's going to mm-hmm. be um, varying levels of it. And, you know, when it comes to treatment, we sort of have to divide it into disorders and not. And that's mm-hmm. a lot of that has to do with like insurance, reimbursement and things like that. Um, but any time where anxiety is getting in the way of things that are important to you, I think that's something to look out for. And as that happens more and more, that is sort of headed more in the direction of a disorder where we would recommend treatment. Um, And one thing I think that's important to keep in mind is just because you have anxiety doesn't mean you will always have anxiety. Just because some situation causes you anxiety right now doesn't mean it always will. We're actually fairly good at treating anxiety when we're actually (laughs) able to get people the treatment that they need. Um, It's just that that seems to be the hard part of it. Um, So, you know, anxiety disorders are, you know, one of the most, actually, they're the most common form of mental illness. Um, So they affect almost 20% of the U.S. adult population. They affect over 30% of adolescents aged 13 to 18. So we're talking about tens of millions of people in the U.S. um, that suffer from an anxiety disorder. And only like less than a third actually receive the treatment that they would need. So, or actually I think receive any kind of treatment and the ones who receive good quality treatment is even lower. Um, So yeah, so I, I, I just think it's important to keep in mind that, you know, this is treatable, it's changeable. It doesn't have to be a forever kind of thing. And a lot of people with anxiety disorders suffer for a really long time um, before they actually seek out treatment um, and, you know, we need to do a better job of getting the treatment that people need to them when they need it. Um, but at the same time, I think it's important that the public knows that there are options out there, basically. That is fascinating. Could you walk us through some of the, I have so many questions, but to start off, some of the, <laughs> the gold standard treatments or the things that we know work right now, what do we have data and evidence to support? Yeah, so there's two primary treatments for anxiety disorders. So there's one medication treatment, which is usually SSRIs or selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. Those are also used to treat depression. Mm -hmm. Uh, As a clinical psychologist, I can't really speak too much to the treatment of it, except Mm -hmm. to say it's one of the two gold standard treatments for anxiety Mm -hmm. disorders. Um, The other one would be uh, cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, In particular, exposures tend to work really well for anxiety Mm -hmm. disorders, um, Mm -hmm. and that's because what we tend to see in anxiety is anxiety makes us want to avoid a situation. Cause if, like I said, anxiety is anticipation of a future threat. So if we're mm-hmm. anticipating some kind of future threat or some kind of negative interaction or whatever it might be, we tend to want to avoid it. Cause that's what we do in like mm-hmm. all other aspects mm-hmm. of life. Like, so we don't <laughs> want to avoid getting wet. We use an umbrella, you know? So it sort of makes sense. And it's sort of mm-hmm. intuitive that you would want to avoid something that causes anxiety. But that said, that sort of reinforces these thoughts that the situation is dangerous um, or that, you know, you can't cope with it. And then we see that over time, anxiety gets worse and worse. So sort of Mm -hmm. the antidote to avoidance would be to approach. Mm -hmm. uh, And what we would call that in therapy is exposure. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, you know, I think that the most common example that people would probably think of is like with specific phobias. So if you're afraid of, spiders or something, for example, you know, we would have some kind of hierarchy of situations that cause anxiety and fear related to spiders. So it might be looking at a picture of a spider, looking at a real spider in a glass box across the room, and then 
getting closer to it. So we would do that over time, sort of mm-hmm. like a graduated exposure. Um, mm-hmm. And that works really well for treating anxiety disorders. That is so interesting. And I think it's a term that the term exposure therapy is kind of been in the ether for a while now, but I appreciate how you just walked through that this is a stepwise process. And is this something that people, you know, if you recognized you had an anxiety, is this something that you should do without or can do without somebody's supervision in that process? Or does this really need to be put into a kind of clinical care-esque type of situation? That's a great question. I think it really depends on the situation and sort of mm-hmm. the level of fear. Generally speaking, like I I encourage people to like when there's a situation that causes you some level of anxiety mm-hmm. to approach instead of avoid mm-hmm. um, because we know that that's going to help over time. If it's something that is going to um, cause so much distress that you almost feel like flooded and then it's going to get in the way of um, doing similar things in the future, then I would say you probably want some treatment to go with it. The other thing is that, um, you know, the the cognitive piece of cognitive Mm -hmm. behavior therapy is uh, we focus on the cognitions or the thoughts related to these situations. And so um, there's different sort of schools of thought about how to approach therapy. Like some people really think that it's important to uh, get as as high of anxious arousal and fear in an exposure um, to see improvement over time. There's some more recent research that calls that maybe into question. But in any case, some people would argue that uh, doing some cognitive therapy first can actually help you when you're in that situation um, to so that your distress isn't as high as it would be otherwise. So all this to say, like, you know, if you're if you're in doubt, like maybe just seek out therapy and then, um, you know, a clinician can work with you on all of these approaches mm-hmm. and doing it in a way that's that's going to be helpful. The other thing is like when you're doing exposures, like a true exposure exercise, like you want to there's certain things you want to make sure that you're doing um, that a clinician would be able to catch. So, um, for example, uh, safety behaviors can sometimes interfere with the effectiveness of an exposure. And what I mean by a safety behavior is anything that is going to uh, decrease your anxiety in that situation. So again, this is coming from the school of thought of you want high anxiety and distress mm-hmm. in the exposures, which again, there's different schools of thought. But um, if you want anxiety and distress to be really, really high in that exposure, anything that you're doing to decrease it in that situation can actually interfere with like long-term improvement. Hmm. So um that can be a lot of different things. Like it might mean like, like if you're afraid of flying, for example, it might mean keeping like a Xanax in your pocket when you fly, even if you don't take it. That, that's one example of a safety mm. behavior because you know that it's staying. And one reason that that can interfere with long-term improvement is because you might think, oh, I can do this thing, but only if I have this backup in my pocket. Right. And really right. that has nothing to do with it. You know, you right. can still do it without that. Sure. Um, so to really see that, you know, what we would call extinction or to see that long-term improvement and see that anxiety or fear really go away, um, hmm. you would want to eliminate safety behavior. So that's just one example of how hmm. um, having a clinician there can be really helpful. 
Interesting. It also kind of reminds me for folks who are looking to, or makes me think about it, at least for folks who are looking to go into therapy, is that it seems to me like these are important questions to maybe ask the, your therapist or the clinician that you're working with. Kind of what is there, and this feels a little heavy and kind of like fancy, but like, what is their approach, right? Like, how are they thinking about this? What is their philosophical view on on the outcomes of these things? Because um, lots of things will work for different people in different kinds of ways, and that might not be a good fit for you if you're, you know that's not how you think it's going to work for you. Um, so it's interesting, and especially because there isn't a lot of clarity, I think is what I heard you say, not a lot of clarity on which approach might be better long-term, yeah, right? Well, I mean, we know that exposures work. Mm -hmm. um, and this is like really getting in the weeds of the mm -hmm. theory behind exposure therapies. Like there's some more recent research showing that um, it's called inhibitory learning, that that seems to be what's really important in exposures, but either way, we know that exposures work. Right, um, right. Sort of different schools of thought about how to approach those exposures. Right. And it seems like both work. Um, and there's just some debate over like, which is sort of the best way to approach it, if that makes mm -hmm. sense. But we know that exposures work. Mm -hmm. We know that cognitive restructuring works as well. But when it comes to anxiety disorders, like I said, because of that avoidance, like exposures tend to be kind of the best way to treat anxiety disorders. That is so fascinating. That is so fascinating. Uh, and I want to circle back. Alexis, did you have other questions on that piece no. of it? Because I wanted to circle back to a comment you made about kind of the statistics and number of people who are currently in the midst of anxiety disorders. And, and if anybody has been paying any amount of attention to the news lately, we have heard about the explosion of anxiety and depression and explosion of, uh, of this in, in lots of different populations of people. And so as, as someone who is steeped in and, and, and has been, you know, researching this space for the time that you've been doing it, what do you think when you hear those kinds of things on the news? And is it really, are we talking about a true explosion explosion in numbers or are we talking about being able to identify it better? Or, or is it some combination of the two from, from your perspective as an expert in this space? To be honest, I think we don't really know at this point. Like the research that has been done um, on whether, you know, the pandemic really increased, um, you know, the... Uh, prevalence of anxiety disorders seems to be pretty mixed and it depends hmm. on kind of how you look at it. So I guess my sort of unhelpful response is that I don't, we don't really know. I don't That's think okay. so. Um, but yeah, I do think that there's definitely increased uh, awareness of mental health issues mm -hmm. and uh, anxiety and depression in particular. Mm -hmm. um, and so that could be contributing to this. I think that, you know, even on social media, there's a lot more, um, references to things like anxiety disorders um, that has definitely um, brought it into the consciousness a lot more in some helpful ways and some not so helpful ways, in my opinion. Um, sure, but sure. Anyway, I do think that you're right that there is definitely an increased focus on it now. Mm -hmm. Well, and let's dive into that a little bit, because one of the things that I started thinking about as you were talking to uh, about this just now and, and earlier is like, is that proliferation of the conversation on social media and it being both, a, both a, a blessing and a curse, right? Like, great, we're talking about this. Folks are, we're, we had some, um, some of our early episodes, we're talking about this idea that now people are more comfortable to having these conversations. And that's a good thing, right? We're reducing the stigma, especially for our younger people um, nowadays. But then there's the flip side of it, of maybe it's not as helpful as we think. And we're seeing more potentially inappropriate self-diagnoses or, or things of that nature. And so I'd, I'd be curious, what is your perspective on on that piece of this as, as we kind of unpack 
anxiety in our in our world right now. I think you really hit the nail on the head, to be honest. Like, I do think that talking about it more is really helpful. And I think that uh, destigmatizing um, mental mental illness is important, right? And I think that, you know, TikTok and uh, especially TikTok, there seems to be a lot of uh, discussion of mental health issues on TikTok. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that that increase, increased focus on mental illness and mental health in general is really helpful in terms of destigmatizing. I do think that there's a lot of misinformation out there mm-hmm. about um, mental health, though, that I think can be um, just really unhelpful in some ways. So, for example, like if somebody is, you know, diagnosing themselves with an anxiety disorder and saying, you know, this thing that would cause anybody anxiety. Um, and is a in a very normal amount of anxiety or a typical level of anxiety. Mm-hmm. Uh, if they're saying that that is sort of disordered, and then somebody with more severe anxiety that's more impairing sees that, they might think like, "Well, what's wrong with me? Like, why can't mm-hmm. I handle this? You know, they have anxiety and right. they're able to do this, but I can't. Like, what does that mean? Am I like hopeless then? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's one downside." I also, um, I don't know that there's been any research on this in particular, but with all the self-diagnosis, there seems to be this increased sense of really identifying with these diagnoses, like Hmm. viewing it almost as a part of someone's identity. And again, I don't know that, I don't think that there's been any research on it yet, not to my knowledge. There has Mm -hmm. been a lot of research or some research showing uh, that there's a lot of misinformation and that most of the information about mental health on social media apps is inaccurate and it's not mm-hmm. coming from experts. But in terms of like this increased focus on, uh, you know, these diagnoses as part of your identity, I don't think that there's any research on that. But I think that that is also really harmful because mm-hmm. again, it kind of reinforces this idea that this can't be changed. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is something that I feel really strongly about because mm-hmm. we know that it can, we know that mm-hmm. people can get better. Um, and it's important to me that people know that. Um, mm-hmm. And so... I find that really discouraging when I see that on on social media apps. But like I said, there's pros and cons. Well, and I think you're I think both of those both of your observations about the about the kind of over identification or I think that's a really I, I want to dive into that. But then you said something a second ago too about um, about the impact that this has this self diagnosis or you know kind of identification of with these dis- disorders as being part of who we are um, and the impact that it has on other folks who have the true diagnoses and are going through that. I think that really relates a lot to this this idea of stigma that we're dealing with in this episode, right? And, or this season, pardon me, in a different kind of way than we've actually covered so far, right? Alexis, like, I'm thinking about this as, as like, we we assume and we kind of work from the assumption like oh more talking about it's good right because then people the more we talk about it the more we we destigmatize it but we've actually seen like the pendulum maybe maybe go a little bit too far and that this talking about it is actually harmful to the people who are in the midst of 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 dealing with what that condition is for them and how do they come out of it and on on the other side or seek recovery seek treatment so i'd be curious could you talk a little bit more about that as it relates to the individual and kind of out to our families and out to our communities. Cause I think that's a slightly different way of, like I said, how we've been thinking about mm-hmm. it so far this season. Yeah, sure. So I think that um, 
You're right. That talking about it is great, but I think that the way that we talk about it is really important. Like, so, you know, if we're talking about, you know, parents modeling for their children, for example, mm -hmm. like you can talk about your feelings and talk about anxiety in a way that's useful to your child and in mm -hmm. a way that's not so useful. Like you can, um, talk about and acknowledge the anxiety you might be feeling about a given situation and then kind of model how to regulate those emotions or approach a situation anyway and show that your child like I can do this even though it's hard for me and here's mm -hmm. how I do it that's mm -hmm. very different than you know I have anxiety so I'm going to avoid this situation because I just feel anxious and it's just never going to change right so right. um I think that that is one big way that we can um change the conversation a little bit to mm -hmm. be a little bit more helpful while still, you know, keeping that conversation going and hopefully destigmatizing as well. Um, yeah, I think that that's kind of the primary way. Does that answer your question though? It does. It does. And I think I'd be curious to know kind of on a, because you spend time working in with, you know, lots of different people, right? You're not just working with folks who have anxiety. And so like, what would be, how would we do that on a larger level? You just gave a really great example of like me modeling good behavior for my children or people around me, you know, doing hard things despite them being hard. How do we, how do we level that up to our community and, and talk about this in a different kind of way or start having like sprinkling that thought process in a, on a larger scale? That's a great question. And I don't know if there's a good answer to it. I think that a lot of these conversations happen at more of a personal level, if they're going to be helpful, because um, doing it on, you know, a larger scale, like every situation is going to be different for mm -hmm. each person, like anxiety affects people in different ways. Like, you know, talking on a podcast makes me a little bit anxious, but for somebody else, it might not. And like, right. I don't get that nervous for tests, but somebody else might, you know? So, mm -hmm. um, and not only that, but even if someone else gets nervous in the same situations that I do, that might affect them differently or they might handle it differently than I do. Mm -hmm. So I think a lot of it is just sort of on this individual level. Um, I think that things like this, like this podcast are really important though too, because you're getting accurate information out there. Um, and I think that's huge. And I, I don't know. It's actually something I've spent a lot of time thinking about and like how to make a difference. And I have not come up with a good answer yet. <laughs> so. You are listening to the Mayo Lab podcast. For more information and resources, visit themayolab.com. Now back to the episode. So I, I focus mainly on adults, um, but I do think that it's important that, you know, social and emotional learning and um, learning how to regulate our emotions and behave appropriately is important in school as well. Like, I know that there is research out there showing that I can't say much more <laughs> on it in terms of like how that happens, but I think that schools can play a really big role in that too. So. Yes, absolutely. And and uh, I'd be curious to know if you could point us to and resources that we can direct parents to of young littles, mm -hmm. right, on, on how to do that. Because I hear things like emotional regulation. And I'm like, sounds cool, theoretically, but like, how do you do that in real life, right? Um because yeah. I think that that's the that's the kicker for so much of this, and and I appreciate you also so far just getting into the weeds on all of these conversations with us because that's what we've been doing. We're we're digging in deep. We're talking about complicated stuff that 
most of the time um, our listeners don't get to have access to. So this is really, really helpful. Um, the other thing I wanted to come back to is this, the, the observation you made about people internalizing identities or like co-opting diagnoses, self-diagnoses as part of their identity. I think that's a really interesting observation. And to the best of my knowledge, such that it is in that space, there's not been a lot of work done in that space. But I'd be curious to know, like, what in your experience has kind of led you to that observation of being like, hmm, there's something else going on here. Because you think about it from a clinical perspective and the, the, you know, primary care doctors, pharmacists, nurses, all the folks that people engage with on a regular basis, we're actually taught not to do that, right? Like specifically, like we're talking about person first language. You are not a diabetic. You are a person who has diabetes. And that has kind of spilled out into all different kinds of conversations that we have and around a lot of different topics, right? And so this is actually the reverse of that. And what is what has been, like I said, what has your observation been that has kind of been leading you to think about that in a different kind of way than you may have in the past? Yeah, so um, I know anecdotal evidence is not the best kind of evidence, but unfortunately that's what that's I have fine. at this point. Um, so uh, I would say just it's been partly just what I've seen on social media, but then also what I've seen in mm -hmm. the clinic. Um, what I've seen is that particularly um, kind of younger folks that I've seen in the clinic um, have been a little bit more prone to really um, almost wanting a diagnosis, which I can understand. Like if you're feeling distressed, really wanting a reason mm -hmm. for it, right? And wanting, and well, I think that that has maybe always been there, but I think the difference now is that they're using this language that they're picking up on social media, but attaching these inaccurate facts mm -hmm. or these misinformation to it. Um, and just sort of I really identifying with that. And, you know, I've been doing clinical work at some level, you know, as starting as like, doing intake interviews and all of that, all the way up to, at this point, I'm licensed, but in Mississippi, at least. Um, so I've been doing that, you know, for at some level for like 13 mm -hmm. years now. And it does seem that there has been a shift over time to just more talk about, about this in a, like, uh, patients seem to be coming in with more, uh, seemingly like they have a, a clear, they seem to think that they have a right. clear idea of what they this is because they've read about it or their friend has it or whatever. Right. And, uh, and I, I really think that it's coming from a place of just feeling really distressed and wanting a label mm -hmm. for it. Um, but there's just this misinformation out there. Now. Right. And you talked a little bit about that already and mentioned that, you know, this idea that, that um, anxiety is something that can't change and that you will always have it. And that, that leads us to this idea that it will be part of who you are, personality, what have you forever. What are some of the other key mis pieces of misinformation that you've observed on social media that we can kind of share with our audience to make sure that they are getting attuned to these either within their own um, consumption of social media or in engaging with, you know, friends, family, et cetera? Um, I would say another big one is that people seem to think that, uh, well, not everybody, but there seems to be um, a subset of people who seem to think that therapy should be sort of forever. Mm -hmm. um, and that's not their fault. There's a lot of uh, for-profit uh, therapy options now that want your money for a very long time, which I would argue is unethical. But um, so I think that that's a piece of it is therapy. I mean, 
the general consensus is that therapy should be time limited and goal oriented because if you're coming to me for therapy forever, like that's not teaching you to kind of be independent and have your own sense of agency. Like if you if you start to think, it's sort of almost like the, what I was saying with safety mm-hmm. behaviors. Like if you think you can only deal with this because you come to see me once a week or something, like that's not really helpful in the long mm-hmm. term, in my opinion. Like I think that, um, yeah, therapy should be really goal-directed and time-limited in most cases. Of course, there needs to be decisions that happen with the patient and the provider on a case-by-case basis. But in general, um, I think that that's a big one. Um, Those are the main ones that come to mind Mm -hmm. for me. Well, and I think that's a really great observation, too, because because as we've kind of talked about already, this idea that everyone is talking about therapy and mental health issues and all of these kind of things – that the underlying assumption has been, you know, you're, you're just in therapy forever and you're always going to, versus it being, like you said, time limited and goal oriented. Um, Alexis, you look like you had a question that you were going to jump in there with. And I like kind of lost part of it. And so I'm trying to like reel it back in of it. And I saw, I get the fortune to talk to a lot of students and there a lot of them are female college students um, just being um, kind of in the space and working in college and then at the church I go to and just all that. And so I, whenever they bring up anxiety or there's certain words they say, and that's one of the things I'm really trying to be better about is talking to people about the words they use and the verbiage they use. So one of the things I've noticed on my anecdotal evidence, and I was curious if you had any comments or thoughts is when they say they're anxious and I say why and what it, what it is, Sometimes it almost boils down to just, you know, time blocking better or managing their schedule or maybe they need to exercise. They're just they're maybe more in their head and they just can't think clearly enough to make that next step about the future. They're just anxious because they can't see clear on what's next because they feel so bogged down, like you were saying. Yeah, so I think that that is something that we see a lot with anxiety, actually, like when we are really stressed and overwhelmed, it's really hard to know where to start. And I think that um, it sounds like you're giving them good advice in terms of, you know, really blocking off their time and managing their time effectively and setting those goals. And um, that's what I would do with patients as well. That would be part of what I do with patients. They came to see me too. So um, yeah, I think that that's, so especially with generalized anxiety disorder, which is kind of my area of interest, um, of the most interest at least, um, that tends to be something that we see a lot is like there's this anticipation of sort of this like uncertain threat that feels kind of nebulous um, because, you know, they're worried about a lot mm-hmm. of things. Like that's, that's very, ty- it's very typical. So I think that anxiety or worry would be the right word to use in that situation. And it does sound like, um, you know, just being able to really think about it concretely. And that's another thing that, um comes up a lot in therapy is just once you put it into put something that you're worried about or anxious about or scared of into words like then you can actually think about it more critically so that's again that that cognitive piece um when that comes in so we would call that cognitive restructuring or reappraisal which just means thinking about something in a different way basically so with anxiety that might look like what's the worst thing that can happen in this situation how likely is that to happen? If that were to happen, how would you cope? What might be other outcomes? And so when you're able to look at the full picture, um, our anxiety tends to come down. Um, What we tend to see a lot of times though is with anxiety, 
people get really fixated on, you know, one thing or they're so overwhelmed that like they can't even think about anything, you know? So um, when you're able to really look at the full picture, that tends to to be really helpful. And that's also um, an example of an emotion regulation strategy as mm-hmm, we were talking about mm-hmm. before. It's kind of what does that really mean? And I can point you to resources awesome. too, but um, but that's one option for kind of how to regulate emotions is to to think about things differently. So, And what other types of anxiety disorders are there other than the generalized anxiety? Could you just briefly explain what each were um, for high level for our listeners? Sure. So generalized anxiety disorder is kind of this, you know, uncontrollable worry about multiple aspects of life. There are other kind of aspects that go into it, like um, you know, if there's, you know, it has to be six months or longer, things like that. But generally it's worry about lots of situations that's uncontrollable. Um, there's social anxiety disorder. So it's sort of self-explanatory, but anxious in social situations. Um, there's a subtype that is specific to performance anxiety. So that might be like stage fright or, um, you know, anxiety about speeches, things like that. Um or there's the, the generalized type, which is can include a lot of different things for social anxiety. Um, and then let's see, we've got specific phobias as well. So that's, you know, like that fear of spiders, mm-hmm. like I was talking about, it might be flying, it, might, it could be a lot of things, but it's specific to that situation. Um, there are some child anxiety disorders as well, like separation mm-hmm. anxiety um, that I know a lot less about just because I, and focused on adults. Um, and then there are a lot of other disorders that are characterized by anxiety, but don't fall under the category of anxiety disorders. So for example, obsessive compulsive disorder is not classified as an anxiety disorder anymore, um, but a lot of anxiety goes along with it, right? right? So um, that's one or you know, post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD. Uh, that is classified as a trauma or stressor related disorder, but obviously anxiety and fear play a really big role in PTSD as well. Um, there's also depression with anxious distress, um, which just means depression and anxiety, basically. Um, so, you know, there there are the anxiety disorders, but then there are a lot of other disorders that uh anxiety plays a role and even eating disorders Mm -hmm. as well. That's another common one. And then you talk to Dr. Woodruff Mm -hmm. um, as well. So um, anxiety is one of those things that can play a role in a lot of different things and just in our everyday life kind of separate from any, you know, mental health diagnosis as well. I I had some sense of how far reaching it was, but not quite as Mm -hmm. big as it seems to be. Um, Thank you for that. It, It also made me kind of think about too, what, what are we doing as a community amongst ourselves and our family and our, you know, people around us to make the identification and treatment and recovery from anxiety worse or harder than it needs to be? Are we are we engaging in behaviors or thought processes that are just making it tougher on folks to to find that recovery piece, as you've been talking about? Um, I think we've touched on it a little bit already, just in terms of, you know, those um kind of unhelpful things going around social media and things like that. Um, I think another piece is just we should try to be, you know, really open-minded and hear someone else's experiences and not, you know, dismiss or invalidate their feelings. Um, 
So if someone is feeling anxious about something, just telling them not to be anxious isn't going to be helpful probably. So, um, and it's probably just going to make them feel like they're not understood by you or feel less close to you. Um, so I think that that is one thing that we could do better oftentimes. Um, and then I, I think that we as a field have kind of failed in terms of getting treatment to the people who need it. And again, I don't really know what the solution is to that. I've thought about it a lot and I'm doing research <laughs> on it, but I don't have answers to it yet. Um, uh, another thing is that... Uh, People with anxiety disorders often present to um, their medical providers first rather than mental health providers. Um, and so their medical provider is really important in terms of connecting them with the treatment that they need. Um, and so knowing what to ask for can be really helpful because you know some providers might not screen for anxiety disorders or ask about it um, unless you bring it up. Um, which can be hard because again, anxiety goes along with avoidance. So um, it can kind of become this perpetuating cycle. Um, but yeah, I think educating ourselves and really knowing what to ask for is kind of the the option that's available right now because unfortunately, we're just not very good at getting the treatment to the people that need it. So, and I also forgot to mention one other anxiety disorder before, which is panic disorder. So that is um, characterized by panic attacks, which panic attacks can occur in a number mm -hmm. of disorders, but panic disorder specifically is fear of having another panic attack mm -hmm. and then avoidance, like clinically significant distress or mm -hmm. avoidance impairment um, that goes along with it. Um, so that's the other one. No, you're fine. You're fine. <laughs> um, no, that's great. Alexis, did you have any other questions that you wanted to mm -hmm. ask? Well, I would like, because it's my favorite question to ask when I do conversa have conversations with folks, do interviews, et cetera. What is the thing you thought we would talk about today that we haven't covered yet? Because I know there's something you're in your preparation for our, our podcast today that you're like, oh, I'm going <laughs> to answer this question. And then, of course, we didn't ask it. So what what is your one thing that we haven't talked about today that everybody needs to know? Yeah, I don't think it's that you haven't asked the question. I think it's that I've been a little bit scattered in my responses. But um, one other thing mm -hmm. that I wanted to make sure I touch on is just that um, the stigma related to anxiety disorders, I think, can affect different people in different ways and different communities in different ways. Like there is research showing that, um, you know, people from minoritized backgrounds, for example, are more likely uh, to uh, worry or to like endorse some anxiety about the stigma of anxiety. Um, and honestly, a lot of that is warranted because providers are more likely to use stigmatizing language with patients from minoritized backgrounds as well. And so, um, that's another thing to keep in mind is that, um, so there's some research showing that prevalence rates of anxiety disorders might differ by race, for example, with it being more common in, um, white individuals, but that actually is unlikely to be the mm -hmm. case. Like there's other research showing, like, it's probably more likely that we're just not screening for it right. as well and identifying it in, um, patients from other backgrounds. So, um, it's important to just like not make assumptions mm -hmm. like that. Like, oh, this person must not be worried about this thing or mm -hmm. whatever it might be. Um, and also, you know, anxiety disorders are twice as common in women compared to men, but that doesn't mean that men can't have anxiety disorders. So um, just important to keep those things in mind as well. And I think that that is a really amazing observation. And thank you for bringing that up too, because I think it has implications for how we engage with each other in the world, right? If, if we're assuming that men can't have this, that 
prevents them from having feelings that they're probably already having, have been having for a really long time and, and, and makes it less likely for them to seek out treatment and care. And same thing if you're looking at differences between, you know, people who are white and people who are black or what have you, that prevents them from seeking out those those treatments and those and those care opportunities that, that might be available to them otherwise. And so I thank you for, for making that um, making that uh, observation and sharing those, that background literature with uh, with our listeners. One of the things that we've been trying to do this season is really leaving our listeners with a few things they can do right away. So things they can do as individuals, things they can do for their families, and things we can start to do for our communities. And you've touched on a little bit on all of those so far today, but I wanted to give you an opportunity to just kind of like take a minute, reflect for a second. What are the three take homes that we would like to that you would like to leave? for our listeners for this episode? Yeah, I would say, uh, first of all, make sure that you're getting your information from reputable mm-hmm. sources. Um, I think that uh, another thing that's important is just, you know, in general, if you're feeling avoidant of something that uh, is important to you, and if it's if avoiding it is getting in the way of you reaching your goals or living a fulfilling life, um, try approaching instead of avoiding. Um, even if you're not sure if you'll succeed, like try talking to that person, even if you're not sure if they'll reject you Mm -hmm. or not, or, you know, um, try applying for that job, even if you're not sure how it'll work out or whatever it might be. So I would say approach instead of avoid and um, really uh, be mindful of how we talk about these things and how that might affect other people as well um, and how they feel too. Those are great take-home messages. Thank you so much for being here with us today and sharing a little bit about your experience and your uh, expertise in this space. Um, and I'll, I'll leave to you because you said this way back at the beginning, two postdocs is kind of like the norm now. So you're doing fine. This is awesome. Um, (laughs) And you're going from like good institution to good institution. So like you're on a good trajectory. Um, Thank you again so much. And we'll be sure to share all of the resources that you provided in the show notes for today. So folks can make sure that they get save those links to the places where the good information exists um, instead of, you know, getting back on social media somewhere and maybe not getting the best information. Um, But thank you so much again for your time and we appreciate it very much. Thank you, I really appreciate it. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the Mayo Lab Podcast. The Mayo Lab Podcast is produced by Dr. Natasha Jeter, Dr. Megan Rosenthal, Alexis Lee, Slade Lewis, and Hannah Finch. This podcast was recorded at Broadcast Studio in Oxford, Mississippi. The show was mixed and mastered by Clay Jones, and our original music was composed by Slade Lewis. The Mayo Lab podcast is brought to you by the William McGee Institute for Student Wellbeing. For more information on the Mayo Lab podcast, head over to themayolab.com and follow us on social media at The Mayo Lab. If you enjoyed listening to The Mayo Lab podcast, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give a review on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you are listening to this podcast. This podcast represents the opinions of Dr. Megan Rosenthal, Alexis Lee, and their guests on the show. This podcast is not intended to be a substitute for the medical advice of a licensed counselor or physician. The listener should consult with their mental health professional in any matters relating to his or her health or the health of a child.